Welcome to The Shed Wireless, a podcast from the Australian Men's Shed Association, shoulder to shoulder, virtually. Hello and welcome to episode nine of season two of The Shed Wireless. Coming up, he went from a country town to a coal mine and was headed all the way to the Olympics. Beloved sports broadcaster and mental health advocate Craig Hamilton talks about the new abnormal. From sawmills to windmills, meet the colourful theme at the Port Sorel Men's Shed in Tasmania. Grumpy, not just one of the seven dwarves, a whole way of life. We asked the doc about taking control of irritability, checking on checks. Stuart takes on the hungry beast of health checks. All that and a whole lot more in this episode of The Shed Wireless. And we are joined by the Executive Officer of the Australian Men's Shed Association, back after missing a couple of episodes. Hello, David Helmers. Welcome. It's been a while since we've had a chat, mate. It has been altogether way too long. I know you've been a very busy man uh, behind the scenes and actually having a bit of fun, but I'm not (laughs) sure what we can and can't reveal just yet. So over to you. Yeah, well, we've got a little top secret project happening at the moment. Um, which has been, you know, some great fun to work on. And uh, look, that will all be revealed in the next episode, hopefully, Aaron, everything going on on schedule. But, yeah, there's um, it's been a lot of fun to work on and we're very grateful from the cooperation of a few people. And I think the, the Sheds are going to enjoy it when it's released in, you know, about 14 days' time from now. Here's what I am prepared to say about it. Every single Shedder who sees it, will be talking about it in their shed the next time they're around the block. Yeah, they will be. They will be. Uh, they'll probably have an earworm or two going around in their head for a while as well. Ah, uh, good. There's a good hint. There's a good hint. No, it's really good, really fun. And as you say, one of the things that's so great or so addictive, I guess, about the shed movement is ideas do assume a life of their own and all of a sudden you think you're pushing a heavy stone up a hill and then there's 10 blokes around you helping you get it there and it's what happened with this project a bit as well, isn't it? It is. And look, and it's good to have some enjoyable tasks from time to time. Um, since we spoke <laughs> last too, I've been happy to get out and um, visit a few sheds as well which has been great. I've been up the north coast in New South Wales and around a few locally, um, seeing how things are going. And I always enjoy that, getting back to the the real grassroots elements of men's sheds and get back in the sheds and have a bit of a chat with the guys. And COVID has been weird for that. It's almost like being kept away from the thing that drives us, huh? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we've discussed before the effects of the travel and, you know, people always used to ask me where I lived and I'd cynically say in the belly of a Boeing. <laughs> um, it seemed to be where I spent most of my time and my little boy, was he was used to me being away so often and now he's saying, Dad, you're, you're not going anywhere again, are you? Mm. Yeah, he's getting very attached to having me around the house. So, you know, and it's a love-hate relationship with um, travel. You, it becomes very tedious and time-consuming and you'd much rather be home. Um, but to a certain element, after not doing it for eight months or so now, you do start to miss it a little bit as well, miss the people and the camaraderie of people that you see in the sheds and, you know, um, seeing a bit of the country at the same time. So there's good and bad to everything, I suppose, mate. 
Yeah. Uh, do you want to briefly mention the AGM as well? Yeah, we've got the AGM coming up in December. Uh, all the sheds would have received their notifications by now. If they haven't received their uh, information, we know there's some very lengthy delays being experienced with Australia Post. Um, if they can email us, we'll um, send them the, the documentation, but a lot of it's also up on the website. So the AGM scheduled for December and, uh, you know, all the sheds have the, the right to vote in the AGM. So if they can't attend, we will be broadcasting it on Zoom as well, but um, they can also send in their proxies. So, you know, it's one of those housekeeping things that we do from year to year and we encourage the sheds to actually get involved in it. We can promise you all mail-in ballots will be counted. In <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> let's not open that can. Of we won't go into, into international affairs. Let's <laughs> no, not indeed. But Craig Hamilton is our special guest on this episode, and I know you've had a bit to do with Hamo over the years. Yeah, yeah. I um, first met Hamo oh, many years back, and it was at a... Um, Beyond Blue function that Jeff Kennett mm. hosted many years ago. Um, mm. And, yeah, we've had a bit to do with Beyond Blue and Craig over over the years. He's, a, you know, talks from first-hand experience and um, has, you know, very much a passion for, you know, mental health and raising awareness for it. So I'm looking forward to listening to Craig later in the program. Yeah, and something that comes up in our discussion that will be poignant for you as well is, it's easy to forget now with mental health being at the forefront of so much of the public discourse now that actually having someone like Craig, a coal miner turned commentator, come out and bear his soul about mental health was actually really groundbreaking at the time and gave a lot of other guys permission. And I guess you could mount an argument, even set a trajectory for something like the shed movement. I know in this episode too, we're, we're talking about some of the skills that, that are in the sheds and I think one of those you know and I've been around sheds for many many years now and I always say I've seen everything and anything being built in a shed you know new and old styles and it is important the role sheds play in you know maintaining some of those lost skills but I think the greatest skill that's um, portrayed in the men's sheds is the the skill of good conversation um, an open conversation. Mm. That, that, those chats they have around the coffee table each day, uh, where the guys are solving the problems of the world through to talking about their own problems, is you know the most important attribute of the men's sheds. Yeah, quite right. And speaking of those skills, uh, I've always said long before I got involved with sheds is that. If you watch a master craftsman do their work, and it doesn't matter whether it's somebody speaking at a podium, if they're an amazing speaker, it doesn't matter if it's a writer, it can be somebody laying bricks or using a paint roller. Watching somebody who is really good at what they do is a thing of beauty. And it's interesting, this conversation we have with Port Sorel about the dying art of sawmilling and tailing, I think is the correct term, where you catch the wood coming off the saw, even something like that. Watching somebody do it is an art form. It is. And you know, doing jobs like that, you've got to be very good at it, or you're going to miss, be missing a few fingers at the end of the day to prove that you weren't very so good. I've seen them fill the meat pies. There's 18 pies on a tray. 
and I, I could put the meat in all 18 pies in under a minute and put the tops on the pies in one minute and about 10 seconds, I reckon. And when you had a few thousand of them to do a day, um, you, you had to become very good and quick at it. It was very um, mundane type of thing. Yeah. But you had to keep yourself entertained while doing it, and the best way to that was trying to race yourself all the time <laughs> so you could get on to doing something a little bit more exciting than making meat pies. I reckon if I stuck 18 in front of you right now, it might take a bit longer than a minute to get it. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. I reckon I could still do it pretty quick, mate. <laughs> I think there might be a challenge in the wind. It's like it's like cracking eggs. When I go to a barbecue, mate, I can crack a dozen eggs in no time. Oh, that, that is its own skill as well. Yep, you've got to pick them on one hand, throw them, catch them, crack them, and throw dispose of the shell without getting the shell into the the bucket of eggs at the same time, mate. When you've got a, a few thousand of them to crack every day. You get pretty good at it. I think that is an art form as well. Before we bring up too much post-traumatic stress for you from your life as a baker, <laughs> uh, let's get on with the show. Staying strong. Staying sharp. And staying healthy. With The Shed Wireless. Okay, I want you to play along at home with us. I want you to answer, just off the top of your head, when you were last tested for heart disease risk, blood pressure, cholesterol and lipids, blood glucose test, cancer checks, bowel cancer checks in particular, osteoporosis risk, a tooth checkup, an eye test, a prostate test. Have you been for all of them in the recommended time? That's a huge list, right? It's quite intimidating to stay across your obligations when it comes to health checks. And AMSA Men's Health Project Officer Stuart Torrance is well aware of this challenge because he has something of a cautionary tale to share. Hi, Stuart. How are we going? Did you just rattle off that list in your head? Would you get a pass? Uh, no. <laughs> We're only human. It's not the only thing going on. Well, you can't sit in the doctor's surgery forever. No. I think off the top of my head, there's like 10 in that list, two, four, six, eight, ten, 10 or 11 in that list, which means one a month if they're annual checkups. Yeah, and, and and then you you've missed hearing tests. Yes, cognitive testing. There's a strong link between um, hearing and um, and dementia. They say that uh, a big part of the confusion is the hearing loss in, in the start of dementia. So um, you know, having these tests done, you know, should in all theory put our minds to rest and um, you know make us feel a bit better about ourselves and our situation. We can bury our head in the sand, uh, we can ignore them, and we can even avoid them. But um, to do any of that is just going to delay the unfortunate results. And I suppose that's where I've got to come to my time of confession. Yes, my son, please share. <laughs> so, Father Aaron, <laughs> I'm, uh, basically, I, I, I suppose I'm here to, to say I've um, just failed my bow screen test. And at um, 56, I, uh, I've had several of these tests mailed to me from the age of 50, as they do. The, the test came in and it got 
put aside in that pile of important paperwork, you know, the one that you go, I'm sure I've put it somewhere, and you hunt and peck through it, and there it is in that big pile of stuff you were going to get to at one stage or other. Well, I missed the 50, I missed the uh, 52, I missed the 54, and um, uh, about a month ago I uh, was sitting doing my daily constitutional and I noticed a blood splot in, in the uh, toilet bowl. And I went, that reminds me, I've got to do my bowel screen test. So I called away and got a new one sent out, uh, did the test, sent it away, and I got the results the other day as I have two positive samples and therefore must go for a colonoscopy. What crosses my mind, Aaron, is what would have been the case if I'd have tested back in my 50s, my 52, my 54? Could I have tested positive then? Have I waited too long? And has, you know, something been amiss for all that time? And therefore, am I in for a rude shock once I get my colonoscopy? What they tell me is that it's possibly just polyps, um, hemorrhoids, all sorts of weird and wonderful things happen up in the bowel. They, they tell me that uh, it's possibly not cancer, but now I've got to wait. Number one for the colonoscopy, number two for the, the tests that are, are, are done and for the results to come back. Uh, we were talking about this several weeks ago, about the, the, the worries we had while waiting for test results. This is just a, a big example. And, and when it happened to me, I thought, no, I need to stand up. I need to be truthful and put it out to the guys in the shed and everyone that listens to the, the podcast and say, don't wait, don't avoid it. And it wasn't because it was icky. I'm a very regular bowel movement person, 10 o'clock every day. And what I should have done is I put a, should have put the test kit in the toilet for the minute I walked in there. It was because it was always somewhere else and therefore, you know, I was at work, it was at home and never the two should meet. So, um, yeah, I, um, I finally bit the bullet, did it and, and um, got an unfortunate result in the, in the outcome. Hopefully the outcome of that will just be a, a few things that uh, need to be snipped. So you're not too worried? My, myself personally, no. You know, you've got to go sometime. And even in my early 50s, you know, I, I sort of live life as, as much as I can. Um, and you can only fit so much life into a life. So I, I'm not overly worried now. Of course, the inverse of what you just suggested is possible as well because we're pretty good mates, but I don't know you this well, but I assume it's entirely possible that you could have hopped off the pot that day and not noticed the blood spot and another two years could have gone by, right? Oh, mate, yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's – I'm reticent to call it an inconvenience, but it was inconvenient <laughs> as, a, as a process. Um I remember uh, doing a, a health talk and, and talking about sheds and the Spanner in the Works program uh, down in the Murrumbidgee area. And the speaker before me at the event was a guy actually talking about bowel screening and he made a very good case and I kicked myself because I was 54 at the time. Uh, and I said, I've, I've got to do that test. And had he have had tests with him 
I would have taken one right off him uh, and I would have gone and done it. I was inspired by his presentation. But once again, you know, life gets busy. You get a, you get happening. You get into your emails, your, your Facebook, your, all the phone calls you've got to make and all the things you've got to do. And it's just one of those things that tends to slip by. If I can suggest to anybody that they're letting that happen, go to that big pile of paperwork that you've had it sitting inside, take it out of there, put it in the loo, do the test, send it away. They're fantastic. They uh, they get back to you ASAP. It just gives you peace of mind once you have all the checks and tests done. And that's no different with getting your blood pressure done, your cholesterol, your glucose, getting your teeth checked, your eye checked, your ears checked, uh, your prostate checked, getting a PSA. All them sort of things are things that would assist us to feel comfortable knowing everything is all right. And if it's not, then you know what you need to deal with and then you can seek assistance on how to deal with it. See, I 100% accept what you're saying that you didn't consciously avoid it. Hmm. But I do wonder, and I'm not projecting onto you, I'll speak from my own perspective, I do wonder whether there's a subconscious objection. And I'll make my argument this way. If I got a letter that arrived in the mail on the same day as my bowel screening kit and it said there's a pretty fair chance you won lotto, I don't reckon I'd have gone four years before checking. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Yeah, okay. The point being that... Even though it isn't, oh, it's icky and I'm not prepared to do that and I'm deliberately avoiding it because I'm scared of the doctor or the outcome, I don't think any of us are really going through that mental process. But I do think there's a fundamental, oh, what I don't know won't hurt me or, geez, do I really need that level of grief in my life? I'll just mosey on by and pretend I didn't see anything, you know, whereas if it was a positive incentive, if you thought there was $100,000 at offer, you wouldn't be hesitating, you'd be ripping in. And so I do think we do still have a subconscious objection or fear uh, to a lot of testing. Yeah, I I would tend to agree with you. Um, Is is what you're saying that when they send out a bowel screen test kit, they offer you a $50 voucher if you send it back. <laughs> is that what we should be doing? As I've mentioned to you before, my other life is working in international development and they dream of having a system that's so sophisticated that all you have to do is go to your mailbox to get a cancer test effectively. You, know, you, you can't say that it's not an amazing system already, but... Uh, as with so many things, the problem occurs between the two ears, not anywhere else. But for completely unrelated matter, I've always thought that as well as speeding fines, if they incentivize the fact that you were a good driver, if there was some reward for good driving as well as punishment for bad driving, I've always thought that would result in better driving, but perhaps that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> I believe that did actually occur for a little while sometime. I uh, did it. Probably got expensive. Well, I, th- I think um, police officers were, were asked to pull over good drivers and just thank them for 
abiding by the rules. I, I don't think it lasted too long, but um, I just seem to recall that as soon as you mentioned it. I, I'm the straightest bloke in the world. If I was doing exactly the right thing and the copper flashed his lights behind me, I'd probably behave like there were three bodies in the boots. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'd look so You're guilty. Written all over you. <laughs> what I do, what I do. It actually happened to me. I know we're wandering way off course here, but it actually happened to me. You know when they got rid of the actual Rego stickers. Yeah. And evidently, whether it got missed in the mail or my daughter went and scribbled on the back of it or whatever, but the Rego renewal got by me and the cops pulled me over and said, do you know you're in an unregistered car? And I went, no, no, I've had no notification. <laughs> so does this inspire you to go and do a few of your other checks that are on the list? Absolutely. Well, I, I do go and get my annual checkup uh, at the doctor. Come what may, my wife has insisted on that in the last uh, 10 years, since I, well, since my early 40s, had a, a, a clean bill of health. One of my biggest concerns is as a, as a past smoker, I'm worried about emphysema and things like that creeping up on me, so I always get my lungs tested, my blood pressure and my um, heart checked and, and all the other dietary things. Just once a year, it gives me peace of mind and it gives my wife peace of mind. So it's all good. And sadly, there would be a hell of a lot of us listening right now who would have a story to tell about Bill or Bob or Joe who did leave it go too long. And if only they'd caught it earlier, he'd still be here today. So, mate, I hope everything turns out fine for yours. I'm sure that it will, but we really appreciate. One of the things that I love about you in this segment is that you don't preach from the pulpit you're down there in the mosh pit with the rest of us just trying to do your best thanks for being with us as always no worries aaron good to talk to you amsa men's health project officer Stuart torrance time for our shed in the spotlight first up show and tell let's showcase a project or product from our shed I'm told there are many and varied projects underway in Port Sorel, and to tell us all about them is David Ingram. G'day, David. How are you going? Yeah, I'm really well, thank you. Thanks for being on the Shed Wireless. Let's start with the windmill, can we? Right. Um, Paul Escape from the Treasury, he's, um, he's building an, an ornamental windmill that you uh, like you put in your garden. Beautiful. And what we intend to do is, once he's got it all up and done, we run a raffle at the end of the year for the um, Surf Club has three markets at the end of the year. So we run a major raffle for that and the windmill was going to be one of the prizes for that raffle. How far advanced is he? Oh, he's uh, he, he's having a bit of trouble getting working on it at the moment because we we keep giving him uh, work to do on the computer. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that pest from the shed wireless keeps ringing. That's why. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> Uh, but w- what is the vision for it? Oh, it's mainly like um, what he's trying to do is uh, build a uh, like a windmill like they used to have in Holland with uh, the sails and all that. Uh, the top part is that uh, rotates and it's supposed to look like, yeah, a, a windmill out of uh, Holland. And made mostly of wood? Made of all of wood. 
apart from the bearings in it, of course, but everything else is all wood. And so is he working off some template or design or how's it coming together? I believe he has a, uh, a template for it and a design for it to do, yes. How big will it be when it's all done? Oh, I suppose it'll stand round about... 1,500 high? Yeah, uh, a metre and a half, yeah? Yeah, okay, a metre and a half, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just, I, I oscillate between old money and new money, so it took me a moment no. to process no. uh, what twelve to 1,500 is. Yeah, great. So as you say, ideal for a garden or something like yes. that. Now, did you say it's going to be ready for the Christmas raffle? It is. He is going to have to get a wriggle on then, isn't he? He is. <laughs> right. Well, then we'd better move on to the next project. What else are you working on down there? Oh, well, I've got Peter French here who's working on his, uh, his rebuilding a little um, cupboard unit to go in a camper van for a lady. What sort of a camper van, like a Winnebago kind of thing? No, no, a little camper van, like the little camper, or I suppose the camper trailer, the uh, pop-top ones. Oh, yeah, great. One of those little ones. What exactly is it? A cupboard to go in there, is it? It's a little uh, sink unit with uh, a couple of drawers in it. Nice. So what's involved in constructing that? Quite a bit because it's got to be made of uh, light, lightweight material. It's got to be made to uh, fit the exact uh, location that it's got to go in. So there's a bit of mucking about and a bit of uh, precise uh, measurements to be taken and done. And is she a friend or did she actually come to the shed and commission that? No, she just came into the shed and uh, bought, bought the old one in for us to copy. And, uh, yeah, it was a matter of pull the old one apart and uh, copied exactly the same as the old one. What is the mix of projects? There's two very different ones there, a very practical commissioned one and sort of a fundraising fantasy one. What sort of projects happen in your shed there uh, across the range? Well, we've just uh, finished construction of uh, five barbecue tables for a, a a gentleman runs a bunkhouse up the back of Penguin. Nice. Uh, we did uh, three barbecue tables for the local uh, volunteer fire brigade. Um, and we're also currently, we're doing a lot of stuff for the um, uh, Shearwater Village seven-day makeover people. What does that mean? Uh, yeah, right. They're, <laughs> like, like the little Shearwater Village, there's a few shops down there. So what they've done is now to kind of uh, lift the area, they're making, making some uh, garden, raised garden beds, like we've got trees in. They've made a couple of old um, shipwrecks put on the corners, uh, being like a Port Royal being on the sea, we're kind of uh, that way inclined. And... Um, yeah, then we made some. Uh, we made a, uh, a storage bin to store some chess pieces in because they've built a big. Uh, they've painted a chess uh, board on the pavers outside the IGA supermarket. Excellent. It's kind of projects to try and get the like get a few people in, into there and uh, lift the spirits a bit. And the good thing about all of those that you've described is they're really nice legacy pieces that blokes from the shed just moving around their everyday life will see those picnic tables or the chest storage or whatever. That's one of the good things about those sort of community projects, huh? Yes, it is. Yeah, like a lot of people are going to come down. Well, hopefully a lot of people are going to come down and see them and they, yeah, come instead of just walking into the supermarket and get your groceries and go home, I'll say, oh, we might have a game of chess or a game of drafts. Yeah, nice. And it sounds like the majority of the projects 
projects that you're doing are wood-based. Are you almost exclusively wood? I would say that we do have a, a metalworking shop with a lathe, like uh, our, our main man, uh, P- Peter French, is, uh, he's an ex-metal um, worker, so he, he operates a lathe in that that's out there. We've got another guy, Phil Toss, who's pretty good with a welder, and that does a lot of welding. But the majority of our stuff would be uh, wood-based. What's your passion project right now? At the moment, I'm making a jewellery box for myself that out of the um, one of the magazines, you get the uh, Woodsmith magazine, just saw it in that and thought, oh, yeah, it looks good, might have a go at that. So, yep. So there's a pattern template in there, is there? No, it's just a picture in a book that I, I'm a carpenter by trade. Ah, you don't need a template then. No, carpenter draw by trade. So I just look at it and say, yeah, I'll try and do that. And I'll say, well, bleh. How the hell am I going to do that and try and work it out? I didn't realise you were a professional chippy. I have been waiting for the chance to talk to one on the Shed Wireless because I know that when I move in the broader community outside the Sheds, from time to time when I mention I'm involved, some guy who would probably fit in great in a Shed will go, oh, no, there's no way I'm going to show my uselessness next to all those professional chippies and whatever else. So what do you make of blokes who haven't traditionally worked with with wood when they lob up you know they might have been a policeman or they might have been an accountant what do you make of their lack of woodwork skills oh look it's everyone to his own resources like everyone's not going to be a chippy mm. like you get some people who'll come in and try and uh, make something so like if i can help them or explain well no you don't do it that way you're better off to do it this way because of this and that well, yeah, I'm passing on some of my knowledge and helping them achieve something. Is good woodwork born or can it be made? Can you can you teach someone how to do it well? I, yes and no. <laughs> some you can and some you can't. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Old dogs and new tricks and that kind of thing, eh? Yes. Uh, excellent. David, thanks so much. It's a really interesting and diverse range of projects that you've got on the boil down there. Thank you for telling us a little bit about them today. No worries. Thank you. David Ingram there from Port Sorel Men's Shed. Shedder in the Spotlight. Let's meet and learn about the life of one of our shedders. Our shedder in the Spotlight for Port Sorel is Wayne Weeks. G'day, Wayne. What's your story? Well, I'm going to say that I was invited to this because of my sawmill experience, because being wood is a popular subject here, and we had a field day to my sawmill just recently, and I was surprised that the people knew so very little about it, and um, I was surprised at the interest. So, yeah, it's a, soil milling's an old-fashioned game, like the way we do it. It's, it's in a very short time, it'll be disappeared, gone forever, which is sad. Saw milling is a big industry across Tasmania, right? Well, yes, it was. Uh, mine's what you call a spot mill. The big, they've still got the big mills who gobble up all the little ones, but they, there are a few little, uh, just a, their clientele is really only farmers and country people, if you get what I mean. People still live in the old times. <laughs> and it's in Port Sorel, is it, or nearby? Where was your operation? My operation was uh, in Beulah, which is about uh, 20 20 miles inland from where Port Sorel is, I guess. I've retired now and I live in Port Sorel and I, I'm 
I can help the boys identify timber and characteristics and that sort of thing. How did you get into saw milling in the first place? I'm going to say uh, in the pioneering days, my father had a little spot mill set up because uh, the railway line came, I lived at Rowland and when the railway line came to Rowland, uh, most of the local boys, because they needed an uh, income, went uh, splitting sleepers, but they had to be split and squared. Well, eventually they decided they would take them sawn. Well, Dad set up a little spot mill long before I was born and then Dad just you just cut a bit of timber for his mates or a few palings for the fence or something to repair the sheds. And when I was 12, Dad nominated me to be his tailor-outer because he had no one else left. And the apprenticeship lasted about five minutes and, and then on I was his main tailor-outer, I guess you could say. That was my first experience. So when you say spot milling, he's pretty much just bringing a saw to wherever the logs are, is he? A spot mill, they they would go to a, a place somewhere near the, where the logs were available because there weren't trucks or anything, and they would just lay down some logs and lay down what they call the breaking down trolley and then put a couple of skids down to the the saw the bench and uh, away you'd go. There was really only a temporary thing, but... Most of the spot mills eventually just rotted away, if you get what I mean. The, the portable mills, what they've got today, really would have taken over that market altogether. Indeed. And that job that you said that you got, tail out the <laughs> tail ender, what, what is that? A tailor outer, well, the, the benchman heads the timber in and the tailor outer takes it out the back end of the saw and stacks it and sends the bid back that has to be cut again. In layman's terms, you're the catcher. When it comes out the other end, you're the catcher and the stacker, right? It's very dangerous. If the tailor outer has got to keep the timber off the back of the saw because the, the saw's heading towards the benchman and your life, his life's in your hands. So it's not just the catcher. You're, uh, you've got to be aware of what's going on. Again, help me understand, if the timber hits that blade too hard, there's a chance of it coming free and spinning straight into the bloke feeding it, is it? Is that the concern? No, the, when the benchman's coming in, the, the front of the saw is cutting the timber. But once it gets through and there's a yep. loose piece, you you can't let it touch the back of the saw. Oh, because it'll flick the timber. It'll go, it'll go straight through the benchman, if you get what I mean, or yes. poten- potentially, potentially. <laughs> I imagine that's happened over the years, though, hasn't it? Yeah, let's not talk about that. Yeah, right. Well, it does lead me to the point that it's a tough old business to be in at 12. I imagine it was a tough old business to be in at retirement as well. Did you take to it or was it pretty long-suffering? No, well, eventually, believe it or not, I burnt it down one day. I was playing with some matches. <laughs> and Jeez. when I come home, mum went crook at me, but I, I thought, as later on, I thought, well, I'll rebuild it because I'd planted a few pine trees and I thought, well, when they grow, I'll be able to cut them if I rebuild the sawmill. Well, that takes a long time. And in the meantime, I got married and I moved away and I bought a farm that had a an, another spot mill on it. Uh, and so I decided that I'd be as... I'd buy the sawmill that was only on... It was leased on the property. So I ended up buying the sawmill and rebuilding that one because I the, the the farm that I bought had a fair bit of mill timber on it and I just decided I was going to be a sawmiller and a farmer. So I was going to do f- two days on the mill and five days in the on the farm, but I ended up just doing 
I sold the farm and just kept the mill, if you know what I mean. It's just, it just an accident that happened. I loved working hard and there was a lot of good people around who used to wanted to buy stuff off me. <laughs> yeah. And I, I had four kids and a wife and that helped pay the bills. It, it is damn tough work though, right? Oh, yeah. Yes, it is. But when you get going, you get fit. Mm. And uh, when you get your balance, it's easy. When the sweat's really running out, the down the down your back, you're going all right. <laughs> you enjoyed that feeling of being at the peak of your powers, did you? Definitely. I I'm a, was a worker. I, I'm not uh, academically minded at all, but I had to learn to add up. Mm, of course. Once I started getting customers who had money. <laughs> and you had to take some of it from them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was good. Yeah, well, if you don't got your math, they'll take it from you. That's the problem. Can I ask, did you suffer any injuries? Did you have any near calls? I guess I had near calls, but I, I was blessed in that respect. I'd, I'd never had it. I've still got all my fingers. That was going to be my next question, mate. <laughs> have you got 10 digits? Yep, still got all my fingers, which was good. I did cut the end off my glove one day, and I was told never to wear a glove near a mill, and I have never worn one since. So, What were your hands like at, when you were at your busiest? They must have been like bits of timber themselves, were they? I got a real big splinter in my finger one day, and I had to go to the doctor, and he was digging it out, and he said, you work with your hands, don't you? And I said, yeah, how do you know? He said, because your sinews are like steel. <laughs> he said, I can, I can pick a biro pusher, and I can pick a worker. He said, by the sinews in your fingers. I bet. And are you a big unit, or are you a slight bloke? Ah, uh, medium, medium. I, I used to be pretty strong, put it that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that yeah. Comes with, that comes with exercise and practice. Did you ever swing an axe? I did, but very gently. <laughs> Not competitively? No, I should know. No, no, no. That is something that a lot of sawmills in Tasmania used to do, mm. competitive wood chipping, and I've got good friends who do that. But no, I was more of a chainsaw man, if you know what I mean. Yeah. When you look at the state of the industry, does it make you a little bit sad that you devoted your life to it and it is in some ways, uh, well, certainly the way you did it, is dying? I'm extremely sad. It, it annoys me that people try and preserve the art of splitting shingles and splitting timber. Well, the, the art is in picking the tree rather than splitting the wood, but the art of benching is something that's that's going to be lost forever, which is really sad. To read, to be able to read the read the wood and uh, mm. yeah, it's yeah the art of benching is ten times smarter than the art of splitting shingles, if you know what I mean. Yeah, indeed. Can you talk a little bit about uh, identifying wood and knowing the the, the behaviour of the wood? When you're benching, when you're benching, cutting wood, it's amazing. The timber's alive, mm. and you can tell so much just the way it cuts, the way it feels in your hand. It's uh, yeah, it's something that I could never explain. I had a bloke come to me and said, "Could you train a few benchmen for me?" And I said, "Have you got about ten years?" Mm -hmm. He said, "No, I've got ten minutes." I said, "Well, forget about it." It's an art. It's definitely an art that's uh, that's gone by the way. So I'm not sad about it in the sense. See, with the with the DLI rules and that, you're not allowed to employ anybody in a dusty, noisy, uh, dangerous situation anymore. It's all going to uh, automation. Were you in a situation where a log would arrive though, and you'd actually look at it and know that it was a thing of beauty, and you'd be excited to work with it? Yes. 
Mm. Yep. Yeah. You can you can pick them when the trucks come in the yard. You you can you can start smiling or just by looking from a distance because you can tell. Yeah, and it's we've got a lot of different varieties of timber, and there's I often people say, but they all look the same. But they're the same as a Frisian cow looks like a Jersey cow, if you know what I mean. And funny, the cattle truck pulling up was the thing that immediately I imagined when you described that. And you know, <laughs> you know, when you got a good animal or a poor animal, and you'd be like that with wood, yeah. Yep, yeah, definitely. No, it's it's an art, uh, definitely something that it grows on you. You don't purposely learn it, if you know what I mean. You just when it comes in and you cut it, you say wow, and uh, and like that's uh, and a bit later on, you can say wow before you cut it. I think there's a word for that, Wayne. It's called experience. Yeah, oh, yeah, yep. <laughs> yeah. Do you miss it? Do you miss the physicality of it now? I hate this. I hate it that I'm getting too old to do it. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I I definitely um, I, I still do. I do. I still own the mill and I still do go over a weekend and and when my boys want a bit of timber or somebody, I've, all, I'm, I've still, I'm retired, but I'm still on the job, if you know what I mean. But uh, yeah, I, I, I couldn't do the eight hours straight anymore. No. <laughs> Flat out. No, no. Well, I could, but I'd sleep for two days <laughs> after. <laughs> and have you picked up any long term soreness from it or whatever? What plays up on you? I don't like talking about that sort of thing because I've been extremely lucky. Uh, yeah, I, I don't. I don't have. I haven't got a bad back. I haven't got bad knees. I haven't got anything. I'm seventy two, and I had. Oh, I think I've just been blessed a little bit. Let me flip it from the negative to the positive. Then, what <laughs> what do you think that physical work did for your health and well being your whole life? It keeps you alive. You definitely, yeah, yeah. It's, mm. You you must you, you you just get tuned. Your body gets tuned, and you're you're on your go all the time. If you know, you can't wait to get out of bed to get at it. Mm. If we could get in a time machine and I came at you at 15 or 16 and said, listen, give this business away, come and I'll get you a nice desk job somewhere and <laughs> if you had your time over, would you take the desk job or would you do it all again? i got five brothers who all went into government jobs. They become postmasters and supervisors. They became everything and their life was just bored, stiff and they all said, shit, I wished I'd have done something like you did. <laughs> So I don't regret it. I, I wouldn't take – I used to dislike school immensely, <laughs> if you know what I mean. I, I couldn't yeah. learn to read and write yeah. and all that sort of stuff, but I uh, I was pretty good with my hands. And I actually think that's an inspiration, particularly for young fellas who might be struggling a little bit, that if you can get operational, you, you sort of need a, a baseline level to be operational, don't you? But beyond that, you can carve out a life for yourself without necessarily being academic. Absolutely, and one of my favourite sayings is Australia is just a land of opportunity still. Yeah. Mate, most blokes can't get to 72 and say they wouldn't change much, so uh, <laughs> can tell you count your blessings and well you might. It's been really nice to meet you and I've learned a lot today. Thanks so much. Well, thank you. Wayne Weeks. Shed Story. Let's find out more about our shed in the spotlight. Let's find out a little bit more about the township, the region, 
and the shed of Port Sorrell, and we're joined by Tony Kitson. G'day, Tony. How are you, mate? Yeah, I'm great, thank you. Appreciate you being a part of the Shed Wireless. Let's start with the big picture. Tell us about Port Sorrell as a town, where it's situated, and what its history is. It's sort of about in the middle of Tasmania, up north in Bass Strait. Um, it was the first town on the northwest coast of Tasmania. We was called the First River. Uh, I'm also in the history group at Port Sorrell, so I know a fair bit about it. And why does it exist? Um, well, I guess I was branching out from Launceston, Georgetown area. Uh, they was looking for um, bottle bark, uh, slate and shell grit, and they used to come to Port Sorrell and the old sailing ships and get it. How many people are there today? Uh, when I come to Port Sorrell, it's probably about 400 wouldn't even be that many. Now there's about 4,000. Yeah, really? Yeah, yeah, she's really gone ahead. So what does that mean, young families moving in? Oh, it's been, been uh, going ahead for about 60 years, sort of, you know. Like, yeah. had a, a developer come down from Queensland, Alfred Grant, and he designed the, the pub in the first part of the town, and, and she just kicked on from there. What you're telling me is you haven't been there five minutes. Uh, no, I've only been in Port Sorrell for 75 years. <laughs> That's a good knock. Why'd you stay that long? Uh, my parents wouldn't let me run away when I was three months old. <laughs> you, you've had one or two chances to run away since. What keeps you there? Uh, where I live. You know, I live in a place where she's got a, a, a tidal creek, a fairly big one, goes past my house, across the road, and uh, no one can build across the road from me, and she's pretty, uh pretty good area. Yeah, beautiful. People from the mainland don't necessarily understand the appeal of Tasmania. I've visited there many times. I love the place. What do you think it has to recommend it? Oh, I'd say the climate, mate. It might be cold, but you can always put a bloody jumper on. Get, if you get too bloody hot, you can't take your skin off. I've got to be careful because the Queenslanders are listening, but I actually agree with you. I really do. <laughs> I'd be surprised the amount of people who have come here from Queensland, New South, Victoria, South Australia and West Australia, mm. just into Port Surreal. Yeah. They say with Tasmania it's a tough place to make a buck, but that it's a great place if you've got a buck. And I think a few people are realising that heading down there later in life when you're not trying to make your fortune might be a smart idea. Oh, well, absolutely, mate. See, a lot of if you live up in the rocks of Sydney and you've got a house, you sell for about $4 million to come down there, you retire. Yeah. You can own a suburb in some places for that, can't you? Exactly, mate, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk a bit about the shed itself then. What's the operation like there? Well, I'll give you the history of how she started. Please. So it was in um, 2012. Um, there was a bit of talk around town about, you know, about men's sheds. And so they called a meeting. They'd expect probably 10 or a dozen people to turn up. And 47 turned up. <laughs> so they got a six people um, steering committee going and uh, and it went from there and we got it inaugurated in uh, the about three, four months later. Where is the shed exactly? Well, the one we got now was around at Shearwater. The first one was in Port Sorrell. We were very lucky because one of our members, he was our first chairman, he uh, brought a property down there and had a about the same size as our shed now and he let us have it for five years. But the bugger charged us a dollar a year. <laughs> <laughs> And so it served the purpose for a while, did it? Oh, it was great, yeah. Then we decided we'd go for a, some of the smarter committee members got together and they decided to go for a grant from the 
Tasmania Community Fund, and we got a grant of 140 grand and built our own, and just kicked on from there. And been very lucky in the in the sense that in it, when we was in the first shed, there's a an estate in Burnie, give us a, a heap of gear to go and get, like you know, just mm. machinery and all that sort of stuff. And that was a big help to us. And that all transferred over to the new location, I assume? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, nice. Can you give us a sort of virtual tour? Yeah, well, when you come in the front, we've got a nice um, crib room, we call it, or our kitchen and everything like that. That's uh, 10 metres by about 8 metres. And then we've got an office, toilets, store, and then we've got our shed. She's about uh, 20 metres by about 10 metres. Uh, we've got bloody plenty of machinery in it, thickness of planer, sanders, drum sanders, bandsaws, bloody you name it, we've got it. And then out the back we put two containers with a gap in it. We've got a, a machine shed out there like lathe and welders and grinders and all that sort of stuff. Then you go a bit further across and we've got a, a wood store. Then you go a bit further across we've got a, a lean-to off a 40-foot container, which we uh, do paint preparation in, and uh, another store there. How many blokes you got? We've got 65 paid-up members at the moment. That's fantastic for a relatively small place. Yeah, yeah. We've had more at times, but they come and go, you know. What do you think is the character of your shed? If I interviewed all the blokes and said, what is the flavour of Port Sorrel Men's Shed, what do you reckon they'd tell me? Oh, they'd probably just say it's a bloody great place to go to. You know, you, you can talk to one another, you can have a bit of fun, you can get a bit serious and you can uh, talk about your health. Uh, you know, as you, a lot of blokes can't talk to health with their wife, sort of thing. What did you do for a crust in your previous life? Uh, jack of all trades. Yeah, right. So I've met a sawmill operator and a chippy and a jack of all trades. Are you mostly from a blue collar background, or is there a bit of a mix? A bit of a mix, mate. Yeah. I started off when I was a boy. I started off fifteen. Now I started off in abattoirs. Yeah, right. And learnt to trade there pretty well for a few years, and then I. Uh, what to do then? Yeah, I went to the cement works and I went sandblast and painting. Then I went to the mainland for a while, moved my wife and two kids. I've got four now. Uh, done the same thing over there, then come back and doing a bit of building with blokes. And then I went back to the abattoirs like an idiot and stuffed everything up. Are they still going, the abattoirs? Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's, geez, there's not many in Tatty now, though. No. Uh, I think there's one in Smithton. One in um, uh, Longford, that's about all, major abattoirs. It does make me wonder when you think about young fellas today, when I talk to blokes of your generation, so many of the jobs that were done then don't exist anymore. No. I know there's a lot more work with computers and that kind of thing now, but it does make you wonder what the young fellas are going to do. Exactly. Oh, yeah, she's not good. It's not good. What is your grand ambition? I know that you have to do a little bit of fundraising. How do you raise a dollar usually, and are you in a reasonable financial position there? Yeah, we're pretty financial. Very good, actually. Yeah, good. We've got some pretty good sponsors. Excellent. Uh, we do make uh, quite a bit of stuff, like you might have heard we made these uh, picnic tables and that, mm. and do that sort of thing. Uh, we do do a lot of work. For nothing, like some old people lose a husband and they want their little shed cleaned out and all that sort of thing. And we do a fair bit of work. There's got one care um, retirement village just around the corner from us. And we do quite a few little jobs for them. Building a chook house. Char Taj Mahal, we call it. 
<laughs> double story with steps and all, mate. <laughs> Sounds outstanding. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you love being in the shed? Oh, just comradeship and bloody, you know, do a bit of stuff yourself, help others out. Uh, yeah, no, it's pretty good. It's lightning in a bottle, this shedding idea, isn't it? Oh, mate, it's, it's saved a lot of blokes. <laughs> it saved my life. My miss was going to kill me, so I had to get out. <laughs> Uh, lovely to meet you, mate, and lovely to spend a bit of time in Port Sorel Shed, albeit virtually. Thanks so much to you and the lads for uh, an entertaining chat. No worries, mate. You uh, one of the Coonies from Tassie, are you? Uh, yeah, well, we sort of went there rather than coming from there, or maybe we boomeranged, I'm not sure, but yes, I am. So, <laughs> oh, right. Nice to meet you, Tony. Yeah, okay, mate. All the best, my friend. Would you like to put your shed in the spotlight? Just contact us via email, theshedwireless at mensshed.net, and we'll take care of the rest. You may hear a little bit of atmosphere for this conversation, the reason being it's a rare opportunity to get face-to-face with our big-name guest on The Shed Wireless for this episode. This individual, in many ways, has lived a dream. He grew up in a rural area in Australia, found his way into a coal mining job, but always had a dream of calling live sport. In an ideal world, it would be for the national broadcaster. It took him a while to achieve that dream, but achieve it he did, became a household name commentating on the Grandstand Rugby League team week in, week out, in the NRL in particular, but also international cricket, state of origin, international rugby and other major events. And in some ways, the ultimate chapter was ready to be written when he got news that he was going to be part of the commentary team for the year 2000 Games. And at that point, his life took a pivot that was the best of times and the worst of times. The worst of times in that it turned his life on its head. The best of times in that it's led to two highly acclaimed books and a lot of good done for a lot of people in the wake of it. Full transparency. We've been mates and colleagues for most of the time for the last 30 years. Craig Hamilton, welcome to The Shed Wireless. What a wonderful introduction, Aaron. Uh, it's hard to believe that it's been so long since we've seen each other. I will only meet you in a public place because um, I, I wouldn't like to meet you in a dark alley. But uh, the uh, what a wonderful introduction. I, I literally cannot wait to hear what I'm going to say in this interview. See, all those years you thought I was ignoring you, but I was taking in all your biographical facts over those years. We've got some time. Let's start more or less at the beginning and uh, your childhood. It was not a traumatic childhood. In many ways, it was a wonderful childhood, right? Well, it was. We grew up on a farm in Singleton in the Hunter Valley in New South Wales. And I can never remember feeling that we were poor for starters right we didn't miss out on anything as kids any of the sporting teams any of the registrations to play sport to play rugby to play rugby league to play cricket we always didn't miss out there we didn't miss out on birthdays we didn't miss out on christmas so i knew kids that did that was the thing so that box is ticked with the benefit of hindsight i look back in those days and i think 
I don't know, but I think we lived week to week. Uh, my dad was a dairy farmer, and it was that, you know, that fortnightly or monthly check that came through uh, to, uh, you know, from the milk board that fed us and educated us and um, all of those things. Holidays weren't an issue because we never had any. Uh, someone always had to milk the cows. So, but, but trauma, I think every kid to a degree has trauma. It's part of the human experience. Some traumas are worse than others. Some traumas are beyond you know, comprehension. And, and that's where a lot of the social issues that we have in the world begin. They begin at a very early age and those traumas manifest themselves later on. But I'm putting the psychologist hat on here. I've got no doubt I had traumas as a kid that impacted on me later on. But all of those things are relative as well and all of those things are mixed up with your DNA and your, your way to cope, your resilience, whether you're a sensitive soul for want of a better descriptive term. I think it's all rolled into one, which makes life so bloody complex. Did you want to be a coal miner? I applied for a job as a coal miner while I was in year 12. I was just about to finish year 12 or halfway through year 12 at Singleton High School. And the only reason I applied was because I had no idea what I wanted to do for a job. It was the first job that I saw. It was pinned on the notice board at school. I thought, no, I need a job. I better go and apply. Well, I applied and I got it. I hadn't finished my HSC at that stage. Uh, by January of 1981, I was underground in a mine in Newcastle and I wasn't yet 18. So that's about the story. I knew I didn't want to be a dairy farmer because I wanted some holidays, I wanted some weekends. How do you remember that coal mining experience? Good, bad, a mix of both? Mix of both. The... The thing about coal mining, particularly underground coal mining, is the camaraderie. There's a lot of shit talk, there's a lot of jive talk, there's a lot of, you've got to have a thick skin. Sounds it, like a men's shed. It, it does sound <laughs> a lot like a men's shed if you, um, if you don't have a capacity to roll with the punches, and if you can't, you quickly learn you need to, then it can be a pretty, it can be a pretty tough experience. I was... I suppose blessed by the fact that I could dish it out as good as anybody and but I also could take it to a I didn't mind laughing at myself it didn't mean it sometimes it really cut you to the quick you thought geez they're right on the hammer here and if they only knew how close they are to a weak spot uh, you know in the you know, the, a crack in the damn wall, they'll keep going with this, so I've just got to pretend, nah, it's all good. So the great thing was the camaraderie. Some of the work was horrendous. Some of the work uh, and the conditions that we worked in, it was dusty, it was noisy. You turn your cap lamp off, your miners light off, and you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. It was just uh, overwhelming darkness. You worked in close quarters, so if you had claustrophobia, you wouldn't last in a coal mine, not an underground one. You simply couldn't do it. But So there were good, bad and indifferent. I was okay with the job for a decade. The last six years, I wanted out. 
and I wanted out badly because I'd found my true love by that stage, which was broadcasting. I didn't quite know how I was going to get out of a mine and into a broadcast box. And in the end, it just took a, a hell of a lot of determination and a hell of a lot of hard work. The parallel story of sport and your love for it. In the first instance, let alone talking about it, you were genuinely good at it. You got to a level in cricket where you played a touring Sri Lankan team, did you not? Yes, I did. I did. The, so that, that was the pinnacle. That was the pinnacle. I played for New South Wales Country. It was a game against Sri Lanka, who were touring Australia. I think it was 91. Might have been the 1990-91 season. And we played at McKittrick Park at, at, uh, in Grafton. And I'll never forget it. Um, I'll never forget it. It was a wonderful experience to be actually lining up bowling to these guys. There was about six or seven players that played that day who were in the Sri Lankan test side. I was a player who was not gifted as a, as a cricketer. I had to work incredibly hard. I squeezed the lemon to the nth degree out of myself to become a good player. That's the way it was, but I suppose that just made it even more enjoyable to be successful in a, to a degree. You're a quick bowler. How did you bowl that day, and how different was it bowling at international level to what you were doing at club or regional representative level? That's a good question. I bowled pretty well, actually. I I didn't get any wickets. I should have got a wicket. There was an absolute sitter dropped. It was Roshan Mahanamar, who was the opening bat or bat three in the Sri Lankan test side. And I'm going, here, this, I just want one wicket. And here's my chance, and down it goes. So my figures were none for 28, and I bowled nine overs in a one day. So I didn't quite bowl my full complement, but nine overs, none for 28, bowled well. You asked what the difference was. The difference was if you bowled a bad ball, it would end up bouncing off the fence. So at what point in your mind, as a coal miner who was a sports player, did you imagine that you could be a sports broadcaster? Well, I didn't ever imagine that I could be. It was a dream to do it. I never gave up on the dream. It's just, it's just, how's it going to happen? You know, you can, you know, what do you do? Rock up at the ABC, knock on the door, and say, "Look, I want to be, I want to be a broadcaster. I want to call a cricket. I want to call a rugby league." And they go, "Well, what's your background?" Well, actually, I'm a coal miner. Right. Okay. Well, there's the door, but. I had a, you know, one of those fork in the road moments. I was playing cricket and came from that down in Canberra. Short story, commercial radio station broadcasting the game. They came up when we were batting, said we need someone to volunteer, one of you uh, fellows to come and be on the radio. Does anyone want to do it? And I didn't actually leap out of the chair. A few of the, the boys in the team said, well, look, you're, you're always impersonating the cricket commentators, which I did. I said, you never shut up. We're sick of hearing about you and your impersonations. Get down there. So I did. I was on the radio for 20 minutes and I was hooked. Hooked for that day, from that day on. So I I made the most of that. It became a bit of a snowball. I got other opportunities. I, I got asked to do other things. If I'd said no that day, I'm probably in a coal mine potentially even today. A lot happens between that moment and the moment that you're selected to be a part of the ABC Grandstand Year 2000 Olympic commentary team, but uh, given how momentous that moment was, can we fast forward to getting that news and what happened immediately thereafter? Dream come true. The pinnacle. I mean, if you're a kid who's grown up 
uh, loving sport than to work as a commentator on an Olympic Games. It's the biggest gig on the planet, the Games. It's your home Games. It's 2000. They don't roll around too often. I think 1956 was the last time we had the Olympic Games in Australia, so to be, it's part of history. I'm pinching myself to start with, and I'm thinking, how good's this? I've gone, gone down to Sydney, been, you know, we've been given our media passes, signed the paperwork. I was milking cows on a dairy farm in Singleton when I was 15, and here I am about to do this. How's this happened? It doesn't get any better. And then a pivotal moment happened. Well, I became psychotic in a short story. I became um, mentally unwell. What what did that look like, practically? The whole year of 2000 leading up to the Games had been a nightmare. For the first seven months or eight months of the year, I was depressed. Seriously depressed. I'd never been depressed in my life. Well, not, not major depression. I can look back at times in my life, certainly with the benefit of hindsight, where I was flat, and certainly I was burnt out, and certainly I needed time off work because I hit a wall, but that was the nature of the way I worked. I was very much lived and breathed adrenaline, so if you do that and there's no, if you're on the treadmill, you will hit a wall and it will stop. Life will stop you. So, but this was far more serious. This was a really, really serious depression and I was so deep in it, it just kept getting worse and worse. And it got to a point where I was so seriously depressed, I was suicidal. I I was thinking this is so bad, the despair is so great, the pain is so great that I'm suicidal. Now, but everything was going perfectly, like you're about to achieve your dream. Interesting, isn't it? 1999, let's go back you know, eight, nine months, I was absolutely at the top of my game. Absolutely at the top of my game, uh, professionally, personally, um, and it couldn't get any better. And then extraordinarily, within eight months, I was in that place, I was in that dark hole, and I'm questioning this. I said, I have no reason to be depressed. I have got this dream. I can reach it, it's that close. And I feel like this makes no sense. But that's the nature of depression. How successful you are, it doesn't matter how rich or poor you are, it doesn't matter the colour you, of your skin. Uh, your intelligence level isn't um, a factor either. If you are depressed, you are depressed. It's an illness. In the twinkling of an eye, I get to a doctor to be treated for my depression, which it took me ages to do that because I'm a male and uh, I'm proud and I have an ego and we don't talk about those things, so I did nothing about it for so long. He diagnoses depression in about 60 seconds. By that stage, I knew he was right. I'd worked that out. Got on medication, and within five weeks, I'm as high as a kite. I've had a mood flip, and I'm into mania. And that day on the train station uh, in Broadmeadow, I was about to get on that train to head to Sydney to work on the games, and I had a psychotic episode. Ended up in the back of a police van, ended up being transported to a a psych ward in Newcastle, and within about 15 minutes diagnosed with bipolar 1 disorder, a mental illness. Was it like that happened to somebody else, or is it a blank, or... How do you experience a psychotic episode? I remember it all, which is extraordinary in itself, because you can't be 
you can't be much more unwell than I was at that point. And the psychosis that hit me on that railway station, which is when mania, the, your mind is racing, flips further up into psychosis. Effectively madness. I mean, we're talking insanity here. I remember it all, and, and it wasn't like it happened to someone else. In fact, the, the, my uh, first book, Broken Open, that's where it starts. They always say you've got to grab some on the first page of a book or they won't read any further. So, yeah, it's not a bad place to start. I was so delusional. I thought I was Jesus Christ. And I was going to the Olympics now. It was a different ball game. I was going to save the world. So I was so um, out of touch with reality, it was not funny. So my behaviour morphed into a sort of an aggressive behaviour, sort of a, an abusive type of behaviour. And if you do that on a train station, you're going to attract attention full stop. So that's when the police were called. And I still remember them arriving quite clearly. I can still remember abusing one of my really good friends on the train station who I didn't know was going to be there that day. And that was the nature of my behaviour at the time. So I can still remember the police turning up. I can still remember them handcuffing me at the back of the truck. I can still remember them throwing me into the truck. And, and I can still remember the experience of going from the train station to James Fletcher Hospital, which would have been about a 15-minute ride, and that's the most terrifying experience, the most terrifying 15 minutes of my life. And anyone who's experienced a psychotic episode will understand that. Once you got the appropriate medical attention and things were under control and you were no longer rightfully able to be described as psychotic, you then had to come to terms with your new reality. Well, the first three months I was in denial that I had a real problem. I was in hospital for 12 days or 13 days. I watched Kathy Freeman win the 400 while sitting in a psych ward with seven or eight other people who were just as unwell as I was. And I, I, look, I remember looking around, a lot of prejudice dropped away in those three or four days. When, you know, I was thinking to myself, looking around the room, I was like, my God, get me out of here, all these people are mad. And then it occurred to me, you know, I had a light bulb moment, I thought, well, I can't be travelling too well, I'm in here too. But, so watching Cathy Freeman was, uh, win was a bit of a surreal moment because I, I did think I, I could have been there, I should be there. I had a past that said I could be there, and I wasn't. And so that was a bit heartbreaking. And then the new reality was to be discharged and I'm thinking, well, who the hell am I now? I said, I used to be that guy and now I'm someone else. And it's going to take some time to get to terms with that. It is easy to forget how groundbreaking an alpha male, a bloke who was salt of the earth coal miner, who'd made a success of his life, who was beaming out of the radio, who was at the footy, for you to come out and go, your, your book is called Broken Open, <laughs> that you were broken, was quite revolutionary. As you say, I was broken. You don't get much more broken. The open bit is what comes next. Open the story, open the issue, shine a light on it if you like. So it is just the best title, which I think sums the book up. Did you immediately have a sense that 
your story was going to resonate, that you were going to give permission to other men to A, speak freely and B, address some of their problems? Or was that all a surprise and a revelation to you that there were so many blokes who related to your story? I didn't consider writing a book until I was angry enough. And I wasn't angry enough about what had happened to me. I was angry enough because there were no stories, there was no intellectual property. The next family, the next individual, the next mother, father, brother, sister, who were confronting this stuff, they're walking along this path. And it's a treacherous path. And yet there's no support. And that embarrassment factor, that shame, that stigma, for, for centuries has been, no, let's shut this down, let's keep this within the family group and we'll deal with it. I thought that's not good enough. The suicides in the country are just, uh, even today, even today, in 2020, there are double the number of suicides in Australia than road deaths every year. So, have we still got a problem? Have we still got a long way to go? Yes, we have. So, I got angry about it for that reason. It was written you know, for, for an education purposes, you know, a tool book, if you like, to say, hey, this is how it rolled out, and if you can read this, there might be some flags along the way that give you an indication that it might be you or someone you love uh, who's experiencing this and you've got no idea why. So that was the initial thing. I didn't think it would make it easier for other blokes to talk. I really didn't. But it did. I did. So really, I wanted to just shine a light on it at that time and not necessarily make it um, better for others to speak. I just wanted to make it better for them to, to know they weren't alone and walking down this path. Craig, having had the privilege of uh, reading your two weighty tomes on uh, more than one occasion, I'm going to have to leave out a few details. We can't do every aspect of your life, but what I did want to do was... Why, is this an M-rated show? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, no, we're definitely leaving uh, those bits out. Uh, well, but... I'll just have to read the book. <laughs> That's, com that's coming in the sealed section later of the, the shed wireless. No, you don't have to be diagnosed with depression or bipolar or whatever else. You just have to be on the planet to experience the slings and arrows. And you've come up with a few ways to deal with reality. I think you talk about slings and arrows and the university degree I have is the university of life. Uh, I actually attended Newcastle University for... Uh, six months, uh, which is not long enough to actually give you a, a degree, but I, I did then get a job and I thought, well, I don't wish to go to university anymore. And I think I'm probably the last ABC full-time employee to not have a degree. I don't know that there are any others. I think everyone who comes through the door of the ABC now looking for a job has a degree. So I don't, but I certainly, you know, I think I've graduated, the, you know, university of life. And what I've learned through the period and continue to learn, and that's what for me makes life so interesting and so fascinating, is that, you know, I haven't put, you know, the, the pipe, I haven't started smoking the pipe, putting the, it's put the slippers on and sitting in front of a fire and going, well, I'm just ready to put the tools down. I'm not. There's much more to do, much more to do. And every day I learn something and I want to learn something. I've got a, a very inquiring mind is I observe these situations, and there's no better example than 2020. There's no better example. We have a worldwide pandemic, right? 
None of us have ever experienced anything like it. Every single person on the planet right now, we're just under 8 billion people, no one has experienced what we are experiencing right now. And there is every chance that no one on the planet is going to experience anything like this again. So, what do we learn? I'm not actually, and you may not realise this, but I'm not an expert on pandemics. (laughs) But... (laughs) (laughs) That hasn't stopped anyone else. Why should it stop you? What I have applied and what I've written about in recent times, that's the latest blog I've written, COVID, the impacts as I see them on our mental health and our well-being, and some strategies. And the strategies to manage it, because, the, you know, everyone who, even if they don't have a mental illness, um, have had their buttons pushed. Those buttons are still being pushed, and our stress levels and our anxieties as a, rela- as, as a result of COVID have increased, they've increased. Because all the other stuff that in, in life that we do day to day can cause stress and anxiety. So throw into the mix a rather big dose of COVID and the uncertainty around that, then things are going to exacerbate. So I've looked at, the, I've looked at that and I, I only wrote this, this piece because the timing of it is that what have you learned, Craig? I sat down one day, what have you learned in the last six months that you didn't know? Prior to that, prior to COVID, I thought, right, I can write about that because I've learned a lot. And I thought, well, I'll share that. Now, whether one person reads it or 100,000 people read it, it's, they're just my thoughts coming from someone who's not an expert, but again, just coming from my own personal viewpoint. And I like to, you know, if it, if it helps one person manage the stress of COVID and the lifestyle we face now, then that's great. What have you learned in the last 20 years about coping with the challenges of life, uh, keeping mental good health on the front burner and generally carving your way forward, even in whether it be a COVID challenge, a mental health challenge, the loss of a loved one, whatever else life can throw at you? Work out fairly quickly what you can change and what you can't change. And there's many things that we can't change, so I've I've learned that there's no point ruminating on those for too long because you'll get nowhere. It'd be nice to have a vaccine, but we can't make one happen, can we? No, not at the moment we can't. Acceptance, acceptance of a situation that you have, as hard as that might be, let go of the levers for a while because the the control, we, we all want to be in control. Human beings like to be in control of their environment, their environment, and in their of their situation of their lives. There's more things in life that we are not in control of than we are in control of. So the quicker we realise that, then you drop stress away straight away. You go, right, I'm not in control of that. So why would I ruminate on it for for, for five minutes? And I was the worst at that. I used to think about all sorts of I'd go down a million rabbit holes going oh gee how can I fix that again and you wear yourself out you knock yourself out so that's one big lesson I've learned the other one is stay present absolutely as present as you can be so the best example of that for me is not to be anywhere else other than sitting at this table having a cup of coffee and having a chat with you and then that way I'm giving you the best um, the best bit of me I, that I can give you 
and hopefully that will help someone who's listening to this and and so we can engage in a good conversation i don't even i'm not even thinking what i did before i got here and i'm not even thinking about what i'm going to do when i leave here this is where the action is i find presence a challenge or there's no point devoting your mind to 1990 when you had a six-pack abs and blah, blah, blah. And there's no point devoting your mind to 2030 and whether or not your back will be playing up. All you can do is be here right now, right? Well, you can speak for yourself on the six-pack abs because I certainly still have them. <laughs> Stand by for our video blog. <laughs> I'm in very very good shape and i wish this was a video because i could i could show the men at the men's shed uh that the body is a temple but um it's what was the question (laughs) to the point about um you can't worry about the future too much and you can't get stuck in the past those if you squeeze those two you wind up in the present right well, exactly. You've got no control over either of those things. The, the only, I was saying, the, the only moment that matters is this one because this is the only time that life happens. And I've spoken to many groups, you know, from conferences to, you know, to community forums, a lot of community forums in different country towns, places, population 120, 130. But the message is the same. Put up your hand and tell me what is the most important day of your life? And, you know, a few hands will shoot up. Oh, the day I was born. Mm. Uh, the day I met my girlfriend. The day I made the cricket side. The day I became a dad. My kids were born. And they're all fabulous answers. And you, I wouldn't for a moment argue with those because it's, it's, it's all relative to, to the person. But for me, it's today. Because I've experienced all of those things. I just, <laughs> I've been born. I remember the first girlfriend. I can remember the making the cricket side, captaining the cricket side, being married, having three children. I was there for the three first fabulous memories, and they are memories. And today's the only day. Today is the only day you can change your life, and today's the only day you can change your life, uh, change your life for someone else. So, mate, get there as quick as you can. The Shed Wireless exists, at least in part, because the things that we get from the Shed, the camaraderie that you mentioned before, the mateship, the little bit of support, the fact that someone who knows you well sees if you're not travelling, so flash, all of these things, as well as just the good old-fashioned fun of being in the Shed, has gone away, or at least been changed in 2020 for many of the blokes who are listening right now. What one thing would you like everyone to remember from the experience that you've had having had to battle those demons look after yourself probably would be number one that might sound selfish but if you can't look after yourself you can't look after anyone around you so self-care is so important and i'm very focused on that not to the point where it's all about me it's not it's about i've got people around me i've got family i've got uh, loved ones i've got mates an extended family i've got work colleagues i am no good i cannot bring any value to the table if i am not well and I, may, I know I have a lot of choices and I've got to make better choices and across that 20 years I've made, tried to make better and better and better choices. Look after the person sitting next to you, look after the people who are in your, uh, your realm closest to you. 
make sure they're okay. And if it's a men's shed, okay. Who are the guys who are coming in today? Maybe there's someone there that you haven't spoken to before. Maybe there's someone you don't know. Try to get to know each other and keep an eye on any sort of behaviours that you think might be a concern or someone's a bit more withdrawn and down. That's the message. Are you looking forward to being able to get back to those towns with 120 people in them and no doubt one or two shedders there as well? You're looking forward to getting back and speaking and meeting people? Absolutely. I love it. I really do. That's been the blessing that's come out of all this. That I have got to travel and meet a lot of people and talk. And every time I, I speak, it's different because it is a different audience and I can't wait to do that. When that happens, it happens. It is, it is what it is, as they say in the classics. I don't lie awake at night and uh, knock myself out thinking, oh, I'd like to be doing that right now. Sure, I would, but it's not happening. So, so we'll just wait until it is. So the next time we come together, we're going to have a talk about financial intelligence because this morning, not only have I made you give up your time that's normally very valuable, I managed to get you to pay for the coffees here as well. So uh, you still do have a bit to learn. Uh, No, Aaron, you still have a bit to learn. (laughs) I have paid for the coffees, true. And it's cost me, I'd say, $11, maybe $12. Uh, I haven't invoiced you yet (laughs) for this time. So you have a lot to learn, my friend. <laughs> Tune into the next episode of The Shed, Wallace, when we'll be having a whip round to see if we can pay for Hammo's interview. Thanks so much, mate. Great to catch up. Uh, likewise, I've enjoyed the chat. bloody head if it wasn't so large and distinguishable. Seems to happen all the bloody time lately. I keep having to remind the missus to remember to remind me to not forget to remember to keep them somewhere where I won't forget where they are. And I do, usually. I just can't seem to remember where that particular place is at this very point in time. It drives me bloody mad. I think I'll just super glue them in the bloody ignition when I do find them. I've always been a forgetful bastard like that though. I just put it down to me brain being too full of the more important things like me ingenious plans to build this or that to be able to contain the not so useful information like me times tables or former prime ministers or uh, anniversaries. <coughs> you only get away with that one once fellas, if you're lucky. But for a time there, I thought I might be getting that thing that makes you not remember stuff, you know. I was getting that forgetful, I reckon I could have planned my own surprise party at one stage. I didn't say nothing to anybody, but I knew something wasn't right. But I just tried to not think about it and hoped it was just all because I had too much on me plate at the time. Yeah, I made all sorts of excuses to myself to try and sweep it under the table. I just didn't want to think about it. I mean, I'd just rather not known if ever I did or do. I figured if I did, there wasn't much I could do about it anyways. So I'd just carry on oblivious. No news is good news, right? But it's downright scary thinking about it. Sure not the way I ever planned to go out. I always planned to leave at the top of me game, gently go off in the middle of me sleep, dreaming about all me many past achievements. 
But the missus, she ain't stupid, and she could tell that something was up, especially when I started forgetting how many sugars I had in my own coffee. So, as per her regular ritual, she added it to the note she gives me when she sends me off to the doctor each month. In the end, it just turned out that some of my medications weren't agreeing with each other. The back pills didn't like the way my heart pills were running the show or something, and then they decided to give the brain a bit of a what for. A couple of tweaks to me script, and in a few days, I was sharp as a bowling ball again. Turns out there's a million bloody things that can make you think you're starting to lose a few sheep in the paddock, and it's not always as bad as you think. It could be just something simple like poor sleep or dehydration or poor diet, or like me, just too many pills for me ills. And there's always plenty of things you can do to try and keep the brain in tip-top nick, like doing the odd crosswords and stuff. Use it or lose it, they say. Still can't seem to find me bloody keys, though. Could have sworn I put them straight in my pocket when I got out the... Oh, wait a minute. What's this? <laughs> oh, well, uh, uh, uh... Anyway, fellas, I'm late for me bowls meeting due to unforeseen circumstances. OK, fellas, catch you next week. See ya! <laughs> Got a question? Ask the doc, Professor Rob McLaughlin from AMSA Partners Healthy Mail. In recent episodes, we've had some great discussions about mood and growing older and mental approaches to the slings and arrows that life sends our way. There's an old saying, it's in fact one of our guest's favourite sayings, that ageing is not for the faint-hearted. And so, of course, it isn't uncommon to have a bad day, to feel down, to be irritated, even angry. If I can use the G word, becoming grumpy. You're only human, some of that's natural, right? But if it becomes a habit or starts affecting the quality of your relationships or your personality comes to be defined as grumpy we have a real problem. You have a real problem. So here on The Shed Wireless, and in particular, when we ask the doc, we love a problem and we love helping to find a solution. So we are joined once again by Professor Rob McLaughlin AM. He is a director at Healthy Mail, among many other things, including our Shed Wireless doctor in the house. Hello, Rob. Greetings, Aaron. It is very easy to wake up one day and go, geez, how did I become a grumpy old man? Uh, yes, indeed. I think uh, when we get older, we fall into certain patterns of uh, behaviour and response. Some of them are good, some of them are not so good. Becoming uh, short-tempered, uh, abrupt, overly opinionated, you know, we sometimes look in the mirror and think, am I turning into those old guys on the Muppets, you know, up on the balcony? <laughs> you call that entertainment? Yeah, Statler and Waldorf, their names. <laughs> yes, who, who wants to be like that? You don't really want to be like that, but could you drift towards that sort of, some elements of those behaviours? And what's at the what's at the core of that? You know, why why aren't you as mellow and chilled and benevolent as perhaps you might want to be? Is that reflecting something deeper and darker, and something can be done something about? Most importantly, um, so uh, again, uh, uh, we've asked uh, Suzanne to come along today and give some insights into being angry, being sad, being lonely, and how those things sort of mix together in the behaviours. Mercifully, her involvement stops you and I sounding like Waldorf and Stadler. So, <laughs> Professor Suzanne Chambers, AO, is the Dean of the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. Welcome back to The Shed Wireless. Thank you for giving us a little more of your time. 
Thanks, Aaron. It's great to be here. It is a stereotype, and one thing about stereotypes or cliches is that they tend to be rooted in truth. Grumpy old men is a phrase in the vernacular, right? Well, it is, and... um you know, feeling angry for anyone is, is can be a reflection of feeling sad about something. And sometimes I think what can happen with um, men is they almost get socialised into feeling angry is more acceptable than expressing that you're sad. And I know that I've worked with, with guys where they've been really angry and I've said to them, you know, I can see you're really angry, but it seems like there's a sadness in that too. And they've said, yes, I'm sad. And um, really needing someone to be able to bring that out. The trouble with um, expressing anger, and there's nothing wrong with being angry, Let me, so long as you're not doing anything, mm. you know, destructive mm. to yourself or to others, but being angry is just a really normal emotion. It's difficult though often for other people to be around it. So the, the danger is that if you're angry most of the time, you become not so pleasant to be with and then you can get really lonely if people are withdrawing from you or you're withdrawing from them because you're so angry. So you can get into a real negative loop. Now, there are things that you can do about this and they work at different levels and um, there's lots of information around and, and people that can help you with that. There's there's sort of a more superficial level where you can just work on it in terms of looking at the behaviours that you're doing and, and trying to, to shift those around or looking at thought patterns or thought traps you might have gotten hooked into that are not so helpful exercise, relaxation strategies, things like that. But if those things don't work and you find that you're feeling really stuck in these feelings of anger and sadness, then that's when we need to go a little bit deeper to give you a chance of unfastening yourself from what's pulling you down. Okay, can we unpack a few of the items on that list that you just rattled off there because each of those is deserving of their own little bit of attention? Perhaps... If everyone undertook the thought experiment of would they themselves, the person they were 20 years ago, want to hang out with the person they are now? And if the answer is, oh, no, he'd find me a grumpy old bugger, then maybe that's a good starting point. If we come up with that answer and we wouldn't want to and we'd like to be more appealing to our old self, what are some of the steps we can take? So I think the first thing that happens with everything is to become try and work on some self-awareness so when you're feeling if you're feeling angry or really sad or or really irritated or annoyed is to just notice it first of all rather than Mm. react with it just notice this is happening and then try and and reflect on what's going on in your head sheds are quite helpful for that suzanne if you've been grumpy and irritated your mates will usually tell you so you will get a red flag that's a good thing well might be a good thing it could also be really irritating i'm sure but um it's if you're feeling that what is the thought that's been running around in your head that has been that is kind of driving that and sometimes that's really hard to identify that because we might have suppressed it so much and pushed it down it might be a thought that's that is about feeling not having achieved enough or imagining other people think certain things usually it's often these thoughts are very self-judgmental very negative about the self and you know I'm surprised still how mean people are to themselves in the way they often think about themselves really unhelpful almost never realistic and just doesn't help you get anywhere so becoming aware of that um, is the first step and then trying to think about 
where that came from, where those negative thoughts originated from, where you're judging yourself in such a negative way. You, you, when you move on from that, I think it's about thinking about where, so where am I right now, this awareness of what are the feelings and thoughts that are driving me the most? And from that, you can move to saying to yourself, well, who am I? What sort of a person am I? And is this, am I living my best life? Am I doing the things that I always wanted to do? Or are there other things that I thought were not within my scope or that I never quite had a go at that you might want to try? And then, then reflecting on what are the things that are holding me back from pursuing those? Something we've talked about in earlier conversations has been the idea that even though you age and there's some things that perhaps you can't physically do anymore because you're not strong as you were um, or whatever reason, but it also can be an age where you go, you know what, I always wanted to do that. It seemed selfish or ridiculous when I was younger, but now I'm going to do it. And the story I can tell personally about that is about 10 years ago, I decided to climb Mount Kilimanjaro because a bloke I knew who had done this himself in order to overcome his prostate cancer problems. I thought, well, if Peter can do it, I'm going to do it. And on that trip, there was a chap who was who walked with me up Kilimanjaro who was about 72. And he was much older than everyone else in the group, but he just had always wanted to do this. And finally, he decided he would. Similarly, a couple of years ago, I did the Kokoda track in New Guinea. And there was a chap there who was um, also in his 70s, a great guy who just said, you know, I always wanted to do this, never could. I know I'm slower than everyone else and I'm up the back and, and I'm falling over a bit, but I wanted to do this and I'm going to do it. Now, I'm not suggesting that everyone's going to want to climb Mount Kilimanjaro or do the Kokoda track because I can tell you from personal experience, they're really, really hard. They're much <laughs> yeah, harder sure. than I thought when I got there and there was no escape. The, the point is there are all sorts of things you can do. You can decide to joining the men's shed might be one of those, but you can decide you're going to learn a new skill, you're going to learn a new language, you're going to do read those books you never read, make decisions about the things that you think would enrich your life and help you be more the person that you want to be now. It's not about who you were in the past or who you want to be in the future. It's about who do I want to be now and what steps am I going to take what practical goals and steps am I going to take to get there so I can help myself feel unstuck? Suzanne, of all the hundreds of conversations I've had with the Shed Wireless, of all of the men I've spoken to, the experts that we've chatted with, the celebrities who've looked back on their lives, if I had to summarise it all down to three words, like what is the key to success, what is the way to happiness, what is the fountain of eternal youth, it probably boils down to three words and that is have a purpose. And that's what I'm hearing come through strongly in what you're saying there as well. And for a hell of a lot of the people listening, the shed is the purpose. For others, it might be trekking. For others, it might be learning to paint, whatever. But I see a lot of the sadness and the grumpiness comes when life is happening to you and you're not happening to life. Is that a fair observation? I think so, Aaron. I think that's a good observation. It it really is about saying, well, I actually have the capacity to make a decision about how I'm going to live. Um, there are things that are outside of all of our control. And again, right now with the pandemic, there's lots of things outside of our control, but there are things that are within our control and we can make a decision to change or not. And it's okay to decide not to change, but if we really are feeling we want to be different, uh, we want to be feeling differently, 
then there's some work to do. So we can decide to do the work or we can decide we're, we're going to keep going as we are. That's fine as well. There's no, there should be no judgment in this. It's really about our lives belong to us. How do we want to live them? What about that final point that you made in that earlier list? And that is, yeah, 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 I get all of this, guys. I understand. I do want to be a better self, but I'm stuck in the mud. I'm spinning my wheels. I'm in the quicksand. I can't get to that better version of myself. And then there's the health battles and the blah, blah, blah. So what if your wheels are spinning? Look, get some help consider getting a, a guide to help you. Think of it that way. A GP is a good place to start. A psychologist is someone who can help talk you through the sorts of steps I've talked about and there are better access to mental health care plans to make that affordable. Lots of people are doing telehealth now. Uh, there are services around where sometimes you do need an external person who's a guide who just um, calls you out really, because we tell ourselves stories to avoid taking action often. And so if you get a guide, uh, whether it's GP or a psychologist or a trusted friend, someone who can just go, you know what, mate, that's not really true. <laughs> how about you think about it this way? Or how about you try that? Totally. And Rob, I know that Healthy Male, a lot of its mission is to grease the wheel of this process, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we want people to understand and be comfortable with taking the sorts of actions that Suzanne's alluding to. Being self-reliant includes understanding that you need uh, help when things get dark and protracted. And that can come, as you say, from a family circumstances change, bereavement, physical illness, retirement, transition, loss of opportunity. Uh, if you find yourself off the track, then getting a guide is always the best, it's always the best course of action. And uh, you know, GP, psychologist, uh, an independent person who is uh, interested but not personally interested. I mean, they don't have a vested interest in particular advice to you. They're trying to find the best outcome for you independently. And uh, being called out by somebody, no, nah, come on, you're kidding yourself, old son. That's, that can be really powerful when it's given to you by somebody you respect and who's knowledgeable in the area. It takes a real friend to give you the truth. Oh, that's tough, man. Uh, especially if it's a painful truth yeah. and you might not always welcome it in the first instance, but it is the act of friendship that is happening. Rob, you specialise in putting these quite highfalutin ideas into very practical, accessible ways. And uh, Suzanne, that is very much what you have brought to the table for us as well. Some practical guides, I guess some permission to be gentle on ourselves, but also some encouragement to engage with the realities because lying to ourselves never ends well. Thank you, first of all, Professor Suzanne Chambers, AO, Dean of the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. You've made a wonderful contribution to our Ask the Doc segments. Thank you. It's been great to talk. And thank you as always, Rob. We'll be talking again very soon. Anytime, Aaron. For a great range of resources and tools to help you live well, head to the Spanner in the Works website. You can just search it up or go to mailhealth.org.au. Everything you hear on The Shed Wireless is created to inform and is not intended to be a substitute for personal advice from your doctor. We've pulled the door closed on this episode of The Shed Wireless, but thanks to everyone who is always in touch with us at The Shed Wireless at menshed.net. That's specifically how you get in contact with the show. 
correspond about anything you like. Of course, more broadly, you can get in contact with the Australian Men's Shed Association for any support that you need for your shed. Uh, while you're at it, find Australian Men's Shed Association on Facebook for a great way to connect with other shedders and have a chat and get the goss first and fast. In fact, if you went on there at the moment and went back a couple of postings, you might get a fair idea of the secret we were talking about earlier in the show. We should give a shout out to our chairman, Paul Sladden, as well, David, because he's on the men this week. He is. He's um, been had a bit more maintenance surgery done. Been up on the blocks again. <laughs> on the blocks again, yes. So we wish Paul well. He, sh he should be back on deck very soon. We love him and miss him and looking forward to him putting 2020 behind him as well. Thanks mm. also to Craig Hamilton, the fantastic team at Port Sorrell, with special thanks to Paul for his behind-the-scenes work and tech-savvy, really great stuff. Thank you all there. Professor Rob McLaughlin, Professor Suzanne Chambers, AO, Stuart Rip, Helen Clare and the whole AMSA team, and, of course, our ever-growing band of listeners and evangelists. Thank you for spreading the word word about the shed wireless and especially those of you who actually play it in the shed for others who don't know how podcasts work thank you all and we'll see you next episode thanks david see you Aaron. thanks mate the shed wireless is available via some community radio stations contact your local station to find out when you can hear us if they don't have the show put them in touch and we'll help them out you can also find the shed wireless in apple itunes spotify youtube Red Circle, or just Google us. Wherever you find us, please subscribe so that each new episode gets delivered straight to you. Giving a rating or review helps others to find us more easily. But most of all, please share us with your mates, even if they've never seen a shed, through email, newsletters, word of mouth. Ring a mate and give him the tip. Maybe your wife might even like it. We love your email correspondence to theshedwireless at mensshed.net or just head to the AMSA website www.menshed.org and see what's going on with The Shed online while you're there. It's also a great way to connect with a range of resources, websites and national helplines, including Beyond Blue. If you're experiencing a mental health crisis, call Lifeline Australia on 13 11 14 or Men's Line on 1300 99 78 99. Thanks for listening to The Shed Wireless, the wireless you'd listen to if you were in the shed. Mm -hmm.